Let's, uh, let's read these scriptures now. You may be seated. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. We've been working our way through the... Thank you, brother. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming Messiah. In the Gospels, we discover what happened when that Messiah showed up, and the rest of the Bible is the implications of that, what happened next in the world. Um, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Uh, probably based on Peter's uh, memories and uh, recollections of Jesus. It reflects Peter the fisherman, an illiterate man, never educated. It's short, it's vivid, it's the simplest language in the Bible, and he just says what he saw. Jesus did this, and then he did this. And as we've followed Peter's recollection, we've seen that Jesus began his ministry by, after his baptism, going to the north of Israel and gathering disciples around the Sea of Galilee, training them, teaching them, performing miracles, showing them in a boot camp how to be uh, his disciples, giving them um, challenges. And then when Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the whole gospel changes. And the focus becomes Jerusalem. Jesus leaves the north of Israel. He goes down south to Jerusalem. He is challenged there by the leaders in Jerusalem. They don't like him. He's a challenge to their authority. And they plot to kill him. And we are seeing in this passage the culmination of that. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. We saw last Sunday in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed And he said this, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The cup is the cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross. God's wrath against all the injustice and sin and pain and misery of our broken world that Jesus took on himself. And so he knows it's going to happen. 
Jesus, it's no secret to Jesus. He predicted it all in advance. He knew exactly where he was going, and he knew exactly the cost. And in fact, we saw last Sunday, he's waiting for it. His disciples are asleep. But when he sees Judas coming with the mob, he, he commands him to stand up because his time has come, his hour has come. And that's where we begin here in verse 33. Just as he was speaking, this is Jesus speaking to his sleeping disciples and saying, get up, they're here. Now we saw last week, the disciples there are Peter, James, and John. The core, the original disciples, the ones that he shared his most intimate thoughts with, Peter was the leader. John was the one that, if you read the Gospel of John, records, um, gives the most detailed report of Jesus' prayers. But in that moment of need, when Jesus is praying, when Jesus knows what's coming, they all fall asleep. In fact, Jesus predicts they're all going to run away. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And one of them, Judas, one of the twelve, is the one who comes to Jesus now, leading a mob sent by the leaders of Israel to arrest Jesus. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. The one I kiss... You know, Judas is not just identifying Jesus in the dark. Remember, there uh, on the Mount of Olives, this is a time before flashlights and electric lights. It would have been pitch black. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there would have been trees and God knows what there. Jesus, uh, Judas says to his, the mob, when you see me kiss somebody, that's the one. But he's not just betraying, identifying giving the person to the mob to arrest. He's kissing him. It's a betrayal not only of Jesus, but all the intimacy and the love and the friendship that Jesus had offered to him. Imagine you invited somebody into your life, somebody you grow to trust, somebody you lived with, that you ate with, that you called a friend. Someone who you shared yourself with and made yourself vulnerable to. How would you feel if that person that you had let in, who you'd given access to your life to, used that vulnerability, that free access, to come up and betray you, to turn a kiss into a weapon, to hand you over to your enemies, to misery, to suffering and death? Jesus is not just betraying Jesus. He's violating something. Love, intimacy, grace, friendship. The only reason he could come up freely and embrace and kiss Jesus was because Jesus had let him in. Betrayal is bad. But to use the intimacy of another, to use a kiss for betrayal, that's... That's monstrous. There's a malevolence here. Jesus' betrayal reveals something. A great implacable malevolence. 
a cynical, wholly cynical attitude towards love and generosity. We see a great evil at work in the world right here, using intimacy to kill, to punish, to immiserate. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. So here we have the beginning of the end. Jesus has been a free man traveling around with his disciples. That freedom ends right here. He passes from God's freedom to human control. His friends are replaced with enemies. The man who lived without sin is now embraced and falls under the power of sin. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. One of those standing near. The only people who are there, in addition to the mob, are Peter, James, and John. And it's not clear why Peter doesn't admit it right here. Theologians argue about it. But we know from John's gospel that it was Peter. Peter stood up and fought back. Quite right. Peter was a working man a man of action, the leader of the disciples. We saw that he has just pledged never to desert Jesus in his hour of need. And here, he demonstrate, demonstrates that he's got some grit. He's just been startled out of sleep. He's outnumbered. They're all outnumbered. They're confronted by this armed crowd, a mob in the dark. And Peter stands, and he fights for his teacher. But then notice what Jesus does. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out here with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Peter is willing to stand and fight, no matter what the odds. And Jesus says, no. You know, one of the criticisms, and this has been down through the centuries, one of the great criticisms of the Christian church is the criticisms of wusses, that Christianity is not manly. Rather, it celebrates what are the traditionally feminine virtues, patience, forgiveness, compassion, humility, turning the other cheek. Karl Marx said that Christianity is the opiate of the masses. It makes people passive. Nietzsche went much further. He believed that Christianity destroyed the spirit of mankind because it celebrated weakness and humility. It focused on introspection and repentance rather than action, striving, and success. Famously, Nietzsche said that Christian leaders are really emasculated men, priests forced to wear dresses. Is he right? Certainly, what we see here is a Jesus who doesn't want to fight. They're confronted by an odd mob, and Jesus does not fight. Jesus allows Judas, he, know, he predicted it would happen, he allows Judas to come up and kiss him, to be betrayed. And he stands passively while he's arrested. Literally, like a lamb sent to the slaughter. On the face of it, Christians, because of their great leader, Jesus Christ, 
a wimps, wusses. The ones the tough guys on the beach are going to kick sand in the face of with impunity. So how should we think about this? What do we think about this? Well, with this story, as with all the stories in the Bible, you have to remember that this is one element of a much larger story. The whole story of the Bible, the biblical story. So what is the big story? Well, the big story starts in another garden, the Garden of Eden. And it's a time, the Garden of Eden, where God and humanity live in perfect union, in perfect intimacy. But then a betrayer enters the garden, the serpent, Satan. And soon, Adam and Eve, let's wait for that. Doesn't strike you as odd that I mentioned Satan, that thing goes on. Um, but then the betrayer, Satan, enters the garden, and soon Adam and Eve betray God, and they rebel against him. The relationship between humanity and God is broken, and death is the result. You can think of these stories as two bookends to a story. The first starts in the Garden of Eden, and here in Gethsemane is the end of that story, or the beginning of the end of that story, the bookend to the story of the Bible. It starts in daylight at the beginning of the world, the dawn of life in the garden. It ends at night in Gethsemane in the shadow of death. Adam and Eve talk to Satan. Jesus, as we saw last week, talks through prayer to God. Adam and Eve disobey God. Jesus is obedient. Not my will, but your will be done. The heritage of Adam and Eve is death. The heritage of what Jesus is about to do is eternal life. Adam and Eve turn away and hide because they're ashamed. Jesus turned to God when he was frightened and needed strength. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of life. Jesus drinks of the cup of wrath, of death. It's striking, by the way, the sword element. In Gethsemane, Jesus says, put down the sword. In the Garden of Eden, a sword is taken up. We'll look at that in a moment, guarding the way back into the garden. What is happening in the big story? Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He is... He came into the world to restore the relationship between God and humanity. It was broken by the first Adam and Eve. Jesus Christ comes back as a perfect human being, the new Adam, to restore that broken relationship. And so far from being passive, Jesus here is demonstrating heroism. Because he is going to fight the fight that nobody else can fight, death. And he's going to win. And he knows exactly where he's going. And he chooses to go there anyway. That is courage. That isn't wimpiness. That is heroism. That is an act of love that we can scarcely comprehend. 
What is happening in this little beginning of this little story here is that the history of the relationship between God and humanity is being rewritten by Jesus. By the way, I'm going to leave a question with you. It's not my job to answer every of your questions. If Jesus is the new Adam, who is the new Eve? Remember, Eve was created out of Adam's flesh, traditionally from his side, his rib. What came out of Jesus' side when he was pierced on the cross? Who is the bride of Christ? That's your homework, by the way. But let's look at the end of the story. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his, his garment behind. What an odd little element, almost a farcical element, to add to this great tragedy of betrayal in the dark. Commentators, theologians have pondered, why is this here? Why is this element of the story placed here? Because clearly it's important. Remember, this is Peter's story. Some people, by the way, think that this naked man is Peter. And he's like, you know, Hitchcock, who gives himself a little cameo in the story. But, you know, Peter has not been shy about saying what he does in the rest of the gospel. What is this naked little man about? What is the gospel teaching us? Well, Scripture must be fulfilled. The answer is in Scripture, in the story. What happened in the Garden of Eden? What happened in that original relationship? Well, you, you can read about it all in Genesis 3. It's quite a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. But I'm just going to share some highlights, which I think illustrate this ending to um, Peter's little story here. God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden, and he gives them the garden and the world to take care of, to be responsible for. Male and female, he created them. They get tempted. They listen to the serpent. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they become aware, aware in the sense morally of exactly what a human being is, and they become ashamed, and they hide from God. And I'll pick up the story from Genesis now. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? Remember, this is the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with each other and with God, their creator. Why did they hide from him? And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God and with each other. They walked with God. They were, God was present to them in the garden. They had nothing to hide. 
nothing to be ashamed of. They could be naked, naked, open and vulnerable before God and before each other. God and human beings were of one heart and mind and soul. But then, through the serpent, a lie entered in. You know, the great lie in the, the Bible is that first lie. If you trust God, you're going to miss out on something. You say, don't eat of the tree. Maybe you need to eat of the tree. You're going to miss out on something if you follow God. You've got to take care of number one. You've got to make sure you get what you deserve. Don't listen to God. Listen to me. It's the greatest lie of all. And if you've ever been in a relationship, if you are in a relationship or a marriage, you know that lies, scheming, betrayal is the end or the beginning of the end of a relationship. Hiding and secrecy, the result of lies and rebellion, is death to intimacy and poisonous to a shared life with somebody else. Because now you can't be open and vulnerable and naked with all of yourself. You have to hide. There is something that can be shared, something that you don't want seen. And that's the source of shame. And it's so potent that even the smallest lie or the smallest event can grow into a monster. You know, the Bible says, beware of sin. It's crouching at the door. It looks much smaller than it really is. You know, some of you heard this story before, but it's, to me it's such a potent story of the destructive power of sin. I had um, two friends. They were married. Uh, this was when I was in Manhattan. This is all about 20, 25 years ago. And they're both musicians. And she was in a country band, which is a rare thing in Manhattan. And so she had to travel a lot to find gigs. And uh, she did. She used to wear this great hat, and she had cowboy boots. And it was pretty cool. I went to several of the events. And every time it started to go well with her and her career and her band, she would blow it up. She'd stop showing up, or she wouldn't answer phone calls, or she'd just she'd get drunk, or just do crazy things. And this happened multiple times. She's working and pouring her life into being a success as a musician, and every time it started to happen, she'd just do some craziness, and it'd all fall apart. And it drove her husband crazy, and it drove all her friends crazy, and nobody could figure out what was going on with her. Well, many, many years later, their marriage was in trouble, and they were in Christian counseling. And in a very distraught session, she confessed to what the problem was. Early in her career, on one of her tours, she'd had a one-night stand. And she was ashamed of that. And not just ashamed of that, she was terrified that her husband would hear about this and it would destabilize her marriage and her relationship with her children. And so every time she started to be more successful, there was a danger that her success would mean that she would become known, she, the story would come out, and she'd lose her family and her children. And this nagged at her soul and almost destroyed her. She became an alcoholic. She was into drugs. She almost destroyed her marriage. It was an absolute disaster. A hidden secret that gnawed away at their relationship and her career and her sense of self and worth. 
And thank God that they went to that counseling. Thank God that uh, she eventually had the courage to confess because they're still married. They're, they've been, as far as I can tell, they've been healed. But that one event haunted her for decades. Secrecy, lies, betrayal are the death of intimacy and poisonous to shed life together. And that's what Adam and Eve experienced right at the beginning. They became ashamed. They were needed to cover up their shame. The Bible says they, they um, sewed leaves together to try to cover themselves before each other and to hide from God. So how did God deal with that? What did God do? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. They tried to make clothes for themselves out of leaves. Clearly they were still ashamed because they, they had to hide. So God sacrifices one of his creations, a living animal, and he used the skin of that sacrificial animal to cover the shame of God, of Adam and Eve. And then he drives them out of the tree of, uh, of the garden so they can no longer flourish as sinful human beings. After he drove the men out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. A guard is set on, at the Garden of Eden. A cherubim. The cherubim are the angels of God's personal presence. Cherubim protect the Ark of the Covenant. Cherubim protect the throne of heaven. Cherubim protect the Garden of Eden where human beings and God are together. And now there is a sword that stands between God and human beings. In order to return to the garden, to get back to God, to stand unashamed in his presence, somebody is going to have to take that sword. There will be blood. There will be a sacrifice. There will be a death. And as we continue the story of Mark, we are going to see all those things. Because Jesus is rewriting the story of the Garden of Eden and the history of human beings. And he is restoring the relationship between human beings and God. You know, we just saw that beautiful baptism with Scott Senchuk. What is that? Baptism is being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is the perfect sacrifice that covers, the technical word is atones, for our broken relationship, our ashamedness, our rebellion against God. And Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross so that those two things, baptism and the Lord's table, will have power in our life. The Christian church is the people who are baptized in Christ's blood, that is, covered, 
by the Son of God and fed by his body and blood so that they can stand before God unashamed. And Jesus is beginning this process right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The new Adam is going to face the foe that we cannot face. He is going to defeat that foe, as we're going to see as he goes to the cross, and he is going to restore our relationship with God. That's the story of the Christian Bible. In a moment, we're going to come to this table together. When you do that, as we do that, I want you to think about what is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you believe, do you know, do you have faith that you have been washed by his blood? Do you know, do you believe, do you have faith that in these elements, the bread and the cup, you are being invited to the great feast, the feast of the lamb that was slain so that we can be restored? Because if you do, then you are part of the Christian church. You are a Christian. You have a future not defined by death, but by life and relationship with God. You're part of a family. You have a new identity. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter where you come from, you are now defined by your future and where you're going. And where you're going is to be with God forever. That's why the Christian gospel is called a gospel, good news, for all who believe in Jesus Christ and come to the, Lamb, the great feast of the Lamb. I invite you to the table this morning. But think about it. Figure out who you believe Jesus Christ is. Think about what it means to eat his body and drink of his blood. Because it all goes back to that garden. It all goes back to a new humanity. Let's pray together. Lord, we can scarcely comprehend what it is that you have done for us, what it meant for you to go to the cross, what it meant for you to stand passively there in that dark garden. Lord, um, help our faith. Give us confidence, not in our own record, but in your record. Not in our own goodness, but in your goodness. Not in the kingdom that we can build for ourselves, but for the kingdom that you are Lord and King of. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.